0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for June 22nd, 2018. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. Earlier this month, California Supreme Court heard arguments in a protracted fight over a several-million-dollar legal bill but it's also a case said to clarify the central state rule of professional conduct, namely whether and how a law firm can effectively have their client's consent ahead of time to that firm's potential future representation of a client that could raise some conflict of interest concerns. To illustrate, in this case, a firm, Shepard, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton, LLP, took on a client, JM Manufacturing Company, in a matter, though a conflicts check had revealed that the firm had represented in the past and perhaps would represent in the future, a party on the other side of the V from JM Manufacturing, though in an unrelated manner. Subsequently, Shepard Mullen did in fact resume representing that adverse client in the unrelated matter, raising a potential conflict of interest, but one, the firm says, is solved by a waiver JM had signed consenting to Shepard Mullen's current or future representation of potential adverse clients in unrelated matters. The waiver did not mention the specific adverse client by name or, or give information about that representation, a court of appeal found that we were unenforceable here as a violation of California Rule of Professional Conduct, Rule 3-310, which requires attorneys to receive informed written consent from clients before engaging in potentially conflicting representation. And as a result, the court of appeal ordered returned all legal fees JM had paid to Shepard Mall and agreed that J.M. did not owe Shepard Mullen anything for any unpaid legal bills. The California Supreme Court will now consider the issue, and today we'll hear from three amici who will visit to discuss the arguments on both sides. First, Stephen Rauscher of Ruben, Rauscher & Blum will explain why, in his view, Rule 3-310 clearly negates the enforceability of the waiver here and why allowing general advanced waivers can dilute the deterrent effect of the Rules of Professional Conduct should have against firms considering representation that could raise some potential conflicts of interest. And on the other side, Mickey Jennifer Lagrange, Spertus Landes and Umhofer LLP, and Richard Painter, professor of law at University of Minnesota Law School, argue that sophisticated, repeat litigation players like JM, especially where as here they are represented by independent counsel, are adequately informed by waivers like the kind of issue here, such that there's no rule 3-310 problem. Moreover, Ms. Lagrange and Professor Painter argue, imposing conflict of interest rules too rigidly could lead firms to abandon representation of modest or pro bono clients, and such firms would not want to risk their association with bigger, better paying clients. So we'll unpack all of those arguments, but first, a couple of housekeeping points. As of just a month or two ago, we are now downloadable on your mobile devices. You can find us on iTunes or on the podcast app on iOS devices. Your subscriptions, uh, clicks, likes, and reviews are very appreciated there. Of course, you can always find the program on the Daily Journal website at dailyjournal.com. And also, a regular reminder that listeners of the podcast are entitled to one hour of California CLE credit. that can be found by taking a short true-false test on the DailyJournal.com site where this podcast appears. Without any further preamble, then, welcome Stephen Rauscher to the podcast. He is a partner with Ruben Rauscher & Blum in Los Angeles. He filed a amicus brief on behalf of the Beverly Hills Bar Association in support of the defendant and appellate here, JM Manufacturing Company. Mr. Rauscher, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, An interesting question here, a dispute over attorney's fees and over attorney conflict rules, certainly kind of uh, questions at the heart of legal representation and ones that could stand to influence the way uh, firms, in particular large firms, conduct their business going forward. Um, so we'll dive into the legal questions at issue, but as um, you know, would be helpful, let's go ahead and just unpack the underlying facts here. It sounds like the uh, beginning of the story is with a qui tam action against JM manufacturing. Um, this party supported in the amicus brief. It was brought on behalf of the U.S. government and a number of other parties, including one South Tahoe Public Utility District. So Jam Manufacturing hires Shepard Mullen uh, to represent them. They do so for over a year on the action billing, somewhere around $4 million. But they also, during that period, represent in not the same action, but a but a different one, that party, that South Tahoe Public Utility District. Uh, correct? So the this dispute then arises over whether that should render or require Shepard Mullen to return the fees that it got from JM or whether JM needed to continue to pay its attorney's bills. Is that basically how the story went?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Shepard Mullen, it turned out, had South uh, Tahoe as a client from many years before it started representing, representing JM manufacturing and had been doing gen- representing them in general employment matters, but didn't have an active matter with South Tahoe at the time that Shepard Mullen signed up JM Manufacturing as a client in the in the tam action.
0: And we could just unpack that a little further. So the attorneys working on the South Tahoe matters were, were different than the ones that were gonna shoulder the, and did shoulder the, the JM Manufacturing case, but, but they did do a conflict check before taking on JM, right, and identified this potential conflict that they were gonna have two clients on different sides of the V in that JM case and went ahead. anyways, I think based uh, at least in part on a, on a waiver that South Tahoe had signed that, you know, future conflicts would be okay with them. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So interestingly, there were over 200 um, plaintiffs in the QITAM action, as you mentioned, with just one of which was the South Tahoe government entity. But notwithstanding the fact that there were so many plaintiffs, Shepard Mullen did in fact catch this before they took on the representation. But they made a conscious decision not to specifically call it out to jm manufacturing when they when they signed them up and then uh, as it turned out two or three weeks after they got involved in the quitam action south tahoe came back to Shepard mullen a different lawyer in a different office with uh, another employment matter and Shepard mullen didn't disclose that to jm manufacturing either and that only came out much later Shepard-Mullen's justification for all of that was that in the fee agreements with both of the clients, they had very general and broad waivers uh, that the, where the client acknowledged the possibility that Shepard-Mullen might have a current or future client uh, who would be adverse in an unrelated matter to the client that they were signing up. And it's those waivers that were at the heart of the
0: case. So, yeah, as you say, to, to stress that JM Manufacturing did sign a waiver when they came on that Shepard Mullen might have at that time, right right then concurrently or in the future, client that might be adverse to JM, though I, th- I believe it stipulated that the firm would not represent such a client in an in action involving JM, but could it represent an adverse client in an unrelated matter?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. But the problem was that that's about as far as the disclosure went. And in fact, as, as we discussed, they they knew about South Tahoe as at least a potential uh, conflict, but did not provide any specific information about South Tahoe. And so the question really before the court was whether under California laws of professional responsibility, whether such a broad and general waiver is going to be sufficient for the lawyers to comply with their responsibilities.
0: Okay, so we'll get into that in just a second. But as I understand it, that this sort of contretemps comes out based on South Tahoe recognizing the conflict in the Quitem action I think they disqualify Shepard Mullen from representing JM based on its representation of both South Tahoe and, and JM and then so no, this dispute arises at the trial court level I believe the the matter goes to arbitration where an arbitrator decides that that engagement agreement signed by JM is is kosher everything's fine and so the work that Shepard Mullen did for JM should be, be uh, paid for, and Shepard, the firm, should not have to return any of the, the money that it, it got from JM Manufacturing. The trial court affirms that. But then up on appeal, the California Court of Appeal reverses. Tell me about exactly what its reasoning was there, that the, the heart of the ruling is that, basically, what the firm did violated the Cal Rules of Professional Conduct, in particular th- Rule 310. Uh, walk, walk me through uh, that that decision.
1: Sure. Well, because there was a determination that there was a violation of Rule 3-310, the Court of Appeal found that the contract was illegal at its inception. And as a result, the question of whether the contract was illegal was one for the court and not for the arbitrators to decide. So even though you had the arbitrators, in essence, blessing what Shepard Mullen did, or at least blessing an award of fees to them, that was not something that they should have done, and the trial court should not have rubber-stamped that. So you, that was one of the issues before the Supreme Court as to whether or not that was an appropriate ruling by the Court of Appeal. But assuming that it was, that part of it was on the arbitrability question, then the question is, well, was the Court of Appeal right in finding that there had been a violation of 3-310? The, the nub of the issue with 3-310 is that a, a lawyer who has a potential or an actual conflict, has to provide sufficient information to the client so that if the client is going to provide a waiver, they do so based on informed consent. And what the Court of Appeal found was that this very these very broad waivers, applying to both current and future clients, did not have enough information in them so that the client could be giving informed consent. I guess there's one other aspect to it that I think really bothered the Court of Appeal which was that Shepard Mullen, prior to being disqualified from the Quitam action, when they learned about the motion to disqualify, they went to South Tahoe and essentially offered to pay South Tahoe $250,000 if South Tahoe would back off of its motion to disqualify. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a part of the circumstance that really bothered the the Court of Appeal in finding that Shepard Mullen had acted inappropriately.
0: As you say, the the heart of the question, then, is the, the idea of whether the, or not the consent was sufficiently in, informed, whether the party had enough information, because uh, d- describing it, it sounds like at least technically consent is given, but the question is whether or not that consent was informed. So is that is that what the, the decision turns on? Yes. And the idea being that because the terms of the waiver saying Know, there may or may not be now or in the future some party too vague, and so when the, as opposed to saying you know we are aware of this party that could require our active work in the future, and that party is adverse, that the latter would be you know providing more information, basically.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the definition of informed consent under the California rules of professional conduct is that the client has to be given enough information to understand the actual and reasonably foreseeable adverse consequences, as well as being provided with information about the relevant circumstances. So a broad statement that we may, as you said, we may or may not currently or in the future represent clients who are adverse to you, that really doesn't comply with the disclosure requirements.
0: There are a couple of cases cited by Shepard Mullen before the Court of Appeal and before the High Court. And that, that seemed to provide some favorable and premature upon the idea of advanced waivers, letting clients know they, they might in the future, but maybe don't now, have conflicts. One, I believe, is a visa, a couple of others. But the Court of Appeal says that even though those cases might seem to favor advanced waivers in certain contexts, they, they don't help Shepherd Mullen here. Could you unpack that for me?
1: Sure. Yes. So there's no per se rule against advance waivers. And those two cases that you mentioned, uh, the visa case and Zader versus Kwan is, is another one, are examples of situations where lawyers provided sufficient information up front about the potential future conflict so that when that conflict became a reality, the lawyers were protected and were allowed to continue representing uh, one of the clients in both situations. Zader versus Quan was a situation where the lawyers started off in representing two parties on the same side in a litigation, but they were potentially adverse. And the lawyers said, in the event there is adversity and one of our two clients sues the other, we would have to withdraw from representing client A, but we would be able to continue representing client B. And you understand and acknowledge that and, and here are the you know potential positives and negatives about that. And the client signed off on that, but then later tried to disqualify the lawyer. And the court said, no, that was sufficient information. That was informed consent. But there was a lot of specific discussion that went into that. And that was actually different than what happened with Shepard Mullen.
0: Now in your amicus brief filed supporting J manufacturing here, one thing that you do is you lay out this the state Rule of professional conduct, as compared to the uh, the ABA comparable rule, to show that, in your view, it was violated here. How uh, how do those two rules compare, and in such a way as you say, demonstrating uh, the, the violation here?
1: Sure. First, I should say that the amicus brief was filed on behalf of the Beverly Hills Bar Association, which I'm the chair of the amicus committee, so I'm very proud to have been able to do that, and. We felt that this was a matter of professional responsibility that was of importance to California lawyers, which is why we got involved. And uh, in particular, as you know, uh, at the time, the state, the Supreme Court and the state bar were in the process of revising the rules of professional conduct, in part to bring them more in line with the ABA rules. That being said, although they renumbered the rules, they just recently approved a renumbering of the rules to correlate to the ABA rules, there still were and still will be differences between the California version and the ABA version. And when we're talking about the issue in the Shepard-Mullen case, uh, I think it co- again comes back to that question of well, what is the definition of informed consent? And California, even though they're renumbering the rule, is staying with the definition that I gave earlier, whereas the ABA rule has a what I would characterize as a less robust definition of informed consent. It requires, quote, adequate information and explanation about the material risk and reasonably available alternatives, end quote. But that is a less robust requirement than than the California rule.
0: One other piece of this that does seem to be of interest to the court and that, that I'm curious about is, in, in your view, uh, what exactly constitutes the violation of the rule here? As we've described, that adverse client that's on the other side of the V from JM Manufacturing, Shepard Mullen, was not actively doing work for them when they took JM Manufacturing on as a client. Subsequently, they did do some more work, a uh, different attorney in a different office, in an unrelated matter, did some work for that client. So in your view, is, is the, the advance waiver itself a, a violation? Is it problematic Is or is it? just the signing of that waiver, and then that in tandem with the, the subsequent work for the Davris client, without sort of a secondary additional waiver brought to the attention of JM manufacturing.
1: Yeah, I think in this case, it, you have to combine the vague vagueness of the waiver, which is sort of a matter of universal concern, but sitting by itself, I don't think it would necessarily create a problem. It's when you look at it in conjunction with the fact that three weeks later, three weeks after signing up JM Manufacturing, Shepard Mullen started doing work again for South Tahoe. Now, I think one of the key issues and one that the court signaled in a letter before oral argument that it was interested in was, well, what about at the time that JM Manufacturing actually signed the engagement agreement? Could it be said that South Tahoe was an existing client? And I think the answer to that, as it came out in oral argument and reading the tea leaves, seems to be that South Tahoe probably was a current client, even though there was no active, quote-unquote, matter going on at the time. The nature of the fee agreement with South Tahoe was such that uh, the matter that was described in that fee agreement was just general employment matters. And so it was not a situation where they would work on one employment matter and then they would stop representing South Tahoe altogether. And then maybe six months or a year later a new matter would come up and it would be treated essentially as a new matter. There was not a provision in that in the fee agreement that sort of dealt with that dormant period. And so my reading of it is that especially when you look at the fact that Shepard Mullen did actually identify South Tahoe as a as at a minimum of potential conflict, that they should have provided that additional information at the inception.
0: Another piece of this that comes up in the briefing and an oral argument is that there's something of a kind of implied assumption of risk on the part of more sophisticated parties that, that find themselves in court not infrequently like a big company like JM Manufacturing. And so the idea goes, I believe, that a party like JM would be pretty informed by even a fairly general or you could even say vague advanced waiver because, for one, they are repeat litigation players. They they have independent counsel at the time they they sign those kind of waivers. And so they're pretty well put on notice what that waiver means and what it could mean in the future. You argue that it's dangerous for the court to start to divide professional rules of conduct applicability as between sophisticated and unsophisticated clients. Walk me a bit through that idea and, and your argument there.
1: Sure. Well, there's a couple points there. First of all, in adopting the new rules, which t- don't apply to what Shepard-Mullen did, but presumably you know will be of interest to the bar going forward, the California state bar did not embrace all of the language that appears in the ABA equivalent rules on this question of sophistication of client. And it is true that under the a- in ABA states, there is a little bit more of a bright line that's drawn between a sophisticated and unsophisticated client. Under California law, That issue is not irrelevant to the decision-making, but the focus of California law is, as we talked about, informed consent. And along with that, under California law, clients are allowed to waive a number of conflicts that they might not be allowed to waive in other states. But the idea under California law is that we're going to allow that because we're gonna require robust information and informed consent. When you're talking about a sophisticated client, sure, sophisticated clients may be able to understand risks better than unsophisticated clients, but whether the client is sophisticated or unsophisticated, if the lawyer has not followed through on his or her obligation to provide relevant information, it doesn't really matter whether the client is sophisticated or unsophisticated. If they don't have the information in the first place, then they can't make the decision. And that's what is really the touchstone under California, uh, rules of professional responsibility.
0: I I know one hypothetical that's outlined in in some of the the briefs opposing your point of view here is say there is a a very sophisticated client that's been in in court plenty of times and is aware of of the risks that signing such a waiver like this would would entail. And the hypothetical further goes that even though that party is, is aware of the risks, that rigid enforcement of the waiver, the conflict rules in a case like this would make it such that such a party would just wouldn't be able to hire on the law firm of their choice because a law firm would be kind of um, timid in, in allowing them to sign a waiver like this, thinking they would be violating professional rules. Um, do you think that that is a, a, a concern? Well, it's something
1: to be factored in. You you mentioned that that there might be a situation where the law firm can't disclose information to the potential client without perhaps violating the confidence of another client. You know, an example where the mere identity of another client might be confidential, and that does happen from time to time. Um, but But I think my response to that is, in that case, the lawyer should not be taking on the representation. If the lawyer cannot give the client the information that it needs to intelligently sophisticated or unsophisticated to intelligently make a decision, then it's really the, the burden I think should be on the lawyer not to take on the representation. So, I mean, yes, there's, there's some potential for, you know, reducing choice amongst clients, but by the same token, you know, you're increasing information that's being given to clients so that you hopefully avoid the types of situations that we had uh, in this case. Where the client says, well, gee, if I had known that, I would uh, have reached a different decision.
0: Okay. Um, One one other policy consideration raised by folks on the other side here is that the enforcement of the rules in the manner you describe could incentivize firms to really shy away from representing parties of of more modest or lesser means. You know, say, take, for instance, a firm that has as its client a, a large bank, a very high paying client, and then a bank customer that that needs litigation help but doesn't have obviously as much money as the bank. I might potentially have some connection to that bank via his finances, and so a firm would shy away from taking on a party like that, uh, thinking that doing so could potentially disqualify representation of the the much higher paying client. Uh, what's your response to to that sort of policy argument?
1: Well, again, there's no bar to. Taking on the representation, there just has to be disclosure so that the client can give informed, written consent. You know, this is—I think this is a problem primarily created by you know firms getting bigger and bigger, and the concern is not so much about the, the, the conflicts that they don't know about, or excuse me, that they do know that they do know about, because the ones that they don't do know about, they can provide the informed written consent. I think the concern generally arises because they're so big with so many matters that they're concerned that there may be something that they don't know about. And I mean, that's just a problem endemic to big firms. It's not going to be as much of a problem for smaller firms. So I, I think that there's some legitimacy to that argument. But again, It really comes back to making sure that the lawyers are doing what they need to do in this day and age with, you know, computerized conflict checks and so forth so that they can give the information to the client to make an informed decision. And then if the client, knowing that, you know, the firm represents a bank in an unrelated matter, if they feel comfortable, they can sign the waiver and then there's nothing to stop the firm from representing that uh, low-income or pro
0: bono client. To wrap up, you were at... Oral argument uh, earlier this month. Overall, what, what were your thoughts? It did seem like that the justices were challenging the attorney representing Shepherd Mullen as to the fact that the firm didn't go back and, and let JM Manufacturing know about it picking up work for South Tahoe. But they also challenged the attorney representing JM you know, as to the fact that it's his client was was a sophisticated player. You know, overall, what, what were your thoughts?
1: Well, I think you hit on exactly the two issues, but what I was, that were, that really were front and center during, during oral argument. Uh, but what I was struck by was, um, I came into the argument assuming that the Supreme Court was going to try and find some kind of narrow way to reverse the ruling, which had the rather draconian effect of requiring Shepherd Mullen to disgorge all of its fees. And I came out of the oral argument not at all convinced that that's what they were going to do, because I came out of the oral argument uh, with the strong impression that what happened here really bothered the justices, that they really felt that, that Shepherd Mullen had enough information that it should have disclosed to the client either at the time the agreement was signed or shortly thereafter, so that the, co- the client would have appropriate information to make a decision, and they were really bothered that that didn't happen.
0: Okay, well, we'll find out here in the next few weeks, uh, just what the, the court did think about about the matter. But we'll, we'll leave it there for now. Stephen Rauscher from Ruben Rauscher and Plum in Los Angeles. Thanks very much for being on the podcast uh, to speak about the case. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Are joining us now, or Two folks ready to put in a good word for conflict waivers like the one at issue here. First, Jennifer LaGrange, a partner with Spertus, Landis, and Umhofer. Ms. LaGrange, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And Ms. LaGrange filed an amicus brief on behalf of the amicus curiae legal scholars. One of those scholars is Professor Richard Painter, the S. Walter Ritchie Professor of Corporate Law, at the University of Minnesota Law School so the former associate counsel to the president in the White House counsel's office the chief ethics attorney under George W Bush and presently a candidate for US Senate out of Minnesota running for the seat vacated by Al Franken and currently filled by Senator uh, Tina Smith Professor Painter welcome to the podcast Thank you So uh, listeners just heard from Stephen Rauscher laid out some of the underlying facts here in in the case um but uh, Jen, if, if you would like to um, highlight a few that, that you think are particularly relevant to, to the arguments that you advanced in the, in the amicus brief, we could go ahead and, and, and do that now. So um, what, what are, in, in your view, some of the, the more salient facts you want to have in mind uh, when considering the uh, advanced waiver and, and other questions at issue here?
2: Well, by way of background, Shepard Mullen had represented South Tahoe, which is a municipality, in certain labor-related matters. And later, South Tahoe uh, became a real party in interest in litigation against JM manufacturing. In 2010, JM wanted Shepard Mullen to represent them, and Shepard Mullen ran a conflicts check, which disclosed some prior work for South Tahoe, although the last work had been done five months before. Uh, South Tahoe had executed a general waiver of potential future conflicts, and therefore Shepard Mullen did not disclose the prior representation of South Tahoe in agreeing in negotiating a engagement letter with jm the shepherd mullen offered a waiver that said that they may currently or in the future represent someone in an unrelated matter that is adverse to jm and by agreeing to take the engagement jm would agree to waive the duty of loyalty as long as shepherd mullen maintained confidences the other matter was not substantially related to the engagement and Shepard Mullen had not obtained confidential information uh, material to the other representation. Now, on J.M.'s part, they had independent in-house counsel negotiating the waiver with Shepard Mullen. The court's opinion says that they spent two hours in the meeting, and that independent counsel made handwritten edits, including to the paragraph preceding the conflict waiver. Now, it's also important to note that that lawyer in a declaration said that they were told that there were no conflicts, and that if they had known that they would have declined their representation so there's a factual issue there uh, later that same month shepherd mullen in san francisco began working for south tahoe again and the ultimate opinion the court of appeals said that the waiver was unenforceable essentially because shepherd mullen had not disclosed that south tahoe was a current client in an unrelated matter so the brief that we filed covers three issues The first is that uh, the Court of Appeals opinion did not sufficiently consider the fact that James was a sophisticated client and represented by independent counsel who had reviewed the agreement and negotiated certain parts of it. Now that client understand this means that the client was in a position to understand the material risks with the waiver, had not expressed concerns about the potential conflicts, and in these circumstances, generally, these waivers are effective. The second issue is that the court's appeal's opinion could be read as requiring disclosure of current and former client identities. And this could cause a problem because client identities can be protected by California Business and Professions Code 6068E1, math confidential information, and by California's right to privacy. Sometimes disclosing client identity is not feasible because the client requests it, and sometimes it's not feasible because by law, it could harm the client or disclose the nature of the representation. And certainly this requirement of disclosing client identities adds more cost and consideration to the intake process. And our third point was that this opinion could potentially increase costs for lawyers and law firms in the intake process because they have to consider potential lost opportunities and there's less ability to manage risks.
0: So we'll unpack each of those in a moment individually, but... To start, uh, Professor, could I ask you, uh, there is sort of an overarching policy consideration laid out at the beginning of the brief where you say that enforcing uh, rigid conflict rules will, I'm quoting now, uh, accelerate a worrying trend in which the most prominent law firms represent the biggest clients and as a result might decline to represent clients of of lesser uh, means or or pro bono clients. Uh, Describe to me that that worrying trend you describe and I guess just how, how worrying it is.
3: Well, when a smaller client comes to a big law firm and asks for representation, the big law firm is going to think about not only their current client conflicts that they may have after they discover those after running a conflict check, but what potential future conflicts might come up uh, that could make it difficult for them to represent clients who come in the door and bring new matters in. And if the law firm can't get an advance waiver from the new client that would allow them to represent adverse clients in completely unrelated matters concurrently, they might very well just say no to the smaller clients. It's just not worth to bring in a smaller client who, uh, for example, might be adverse in some future matter, not right now, but adverse in a future matter to one of your big bank clients and you just are not gonna do the intellectual property work or whatever it is that the smaller client wants uh, because you just don't wanna take the risk of foreclosing your ability to continue to provide legal services for a big bank client or whoever it might be. And so you just say goodbye to the smaller client, you're not interested. And uh, the way around that problem is the, an advance waiver and it, it's critically important for law firms to be able to know when advanced waivers are enforceable, when they're not, when are client consent, two conflicts valid, when are they not? If you don't know, you just don't want to take the risk, and you just may want to say no to the new client.
0: Now, to get into the the argument over you know why it matters whether a particular client uh, is sophisticated or not when they're presented with one of these advanced waivers, Jen, or Ms. Lagrange, what what is the argument as to exactly why that's significant in in relation to either a violation or not of this particular rule, 3-310? Is the idea that a a represented sort of repeat litigation player will just have a a larger base of knowledge, so it takes less to make them informed and get their consent? Walk, walk, Walk me through that idea.
2: You hit it pretty much right on. The sophistication has to do with experience using legal services and essentially how how businesses operate. So two aspects. The first on the legal is that you're more likely to understand potential risks that could develop in either the transaction that's at issue or the litigation that's at issue and how that might affect you in the future. If you've done this in the past, you're likely to know, whereas somebody who's never used legal services before wouldn't necessarily understand also you're more likely to have interactions with lawyers and know how their processes operate and what goes through their thinking process so more sophisticated in that legal sense there's also the business sense of understanding the need to manage risks and diversify clientele to stay in business so those aspects together all go into not necessarily the rule, but whether the client understands the material risks of the waiver, which is the key to whether that waiver is enforceable. So the more understanding you have of these business and legal aspects, the more likely it is that that waiver is going to be effective.
0: Professor, do you, could you or foresee any difficulty in courts trying to figure out exactly the line between what constitutes a sophisticated and unsophisticated client of legal services?
3: Well, or, that could be difficult if you apply a, a range of different factors. And it's particularly challenging uh, when a uh, law firm is in a position where they don't know what the outcome is going to be when they get the uh, waiver, whether it's enforceable or not, whether they're going to be held in violation of the rules, because no law firm wants to be held in violation of the rules. certainly it would be more predictable and I think preferable. If uh, you could have a brighter line rule that turned on whether the client was independently represented by counsel, whether an outside lawyer or an in-house counsel, who expressly took on responsibility for evaluating the conflict of interest of the law firm and the risks uh, to the client of giving an advance waiver or any type of waiver when there's incomplete information. And... If a client is represented by an, a lawyer, who, a competent lawyer, who willingly undertakes that representation to evaluate conflict, I, I think that those in those situations uh, the client should be presumed to be sophisticated or sophisticated acting on the advice of the lawyer. And most reasonable uh, conflict arrangements or, or uh, consents, waivers, Be deemed to be uh, valid in force. It'd be a lot better if we could move toward a brighter line rule and where the lawyers who are in the in-house lawyers or whoever it is who's representing the client on the front end would really seriously consider the various risks to the client, different eventualities, figure out how much information the client needs from the law firm in order to give consent. But then once that lawyer has done that work, that we would deem that to be a valid con- and informed consent.
0: One sort of a dire seeming hypo that you guys set up in, in in this brief is makes the situation sound like a a particular client could be seeking representation from the firm of their choice. But were that firm not able to use these types of waivers, it would create a situation where it would just be impossible for that client to to hire that firm. I guess that could Jen, could you describe? To me, how, how that would, would potentially just keep parties from being able to, to get the attorneys that they would want?
2: The concern is that under the court of appeals opinion, it appears as though they requiring identification of a current client conflict by name. And as we discussed a few minutes ago, that could be prohibited by law. Either the client requests it, or you know, as a lawyer and therefore prohibited by law from disclosing it because it will harm the client. In that particular case, if a client insists on knowing the identity of someone who has a current conflict or, you know, an example of a potential future conflict and you're not able to do it, then you're not able to get a waiver. And essentially it's a very paternalistic way to go about it. It does not allow the client to choose for themselves whether the value of the specific lawyer or law firm that they've approached for representation outweighs a conflict in an unrelated matter.
0: Professor, you you mentioned how, Future clients that could come on and potentially be adverse who, who could be unknown at the time a waiver is signed, both unknown to the firm and you know, obviously to the, the the client coming on board. With this idea of sophistication, how does it sort of solve the problem that a party is either represented or deemed sophisticated? You know, how, that, that doesn't seem like it would necessarily help them know you know the the future and how litigation opportunities will arise for a firm. You know then it still seems sort of difficult for them to be able to envision the sorts of clients that a firm might, might have on?
3: Well, yes, but this, this is uh, part of the uh, evaluation of the, of the risks involved uh, when a, a waiver is granted uh, the risks of the client. And remember, our discussion here is focused on adverse representations in entirely unrelated matters. Mm-hmm. If you're getting into representations in related matters, it gets a lot trickier, but if you have a representation in an unrelated matter, the risk of actual harm to the client from the conflict is very much minimized. Uh, remember that a former client conflict is related to unrelated matters. So here, what you're really doing, and a lot of the with a lot of these advanced waivers is agreeing that even though the representation is an ongoing one, that you're gonna play by the same rules that would apply to a former client conflict. So it's not that you don't have any protection at all, you're just choosing to shift from one regime, the much stricter conflict regime for current conflicts, to the substantially related matter test that's used for former client conflicts. And that's a decision that I I think a client should be able to make and make a commitment to if they are represented by counsel that has specifically undertaken the responsibility for advising the client of the advantages and disadvantages of doing that. And uh, if you don't allow that, what you're going to have is is a lot of law firms are going to just say to some smaller clients in particular, it's just not worth the risk of taking you on if it's going to make it hard for us to serve some of our bigger clients if something adverse comes up.
0: Jen, one one theme in oral argument that seemed to come out that interested the court was that, you know, that sort of may all be well and good. It might be perfectly true that the case is a, a sophisticated client comes in with its eyes open to how the representation might go, having signed one of these waivers. But that sort of nonetheless, the court seemed like A firm could still, in the future, give some additional details, maybe a secondary waiver or just a heads up, that it's then actively starting some work for uh, an adverse client in an unrelated matter. This seems to get into another theme of your brief, that there could be situations where it's not so easy to to provide details like that. Could you address that in that that, that piece of your brief as well?
2: So... The court was spot on in that these discussions need to be tailored to the client. And as Richard is saying, when you're dealing with a sophisticated client, they're more familiar with what it means to have the current, past, and future conflicts. So in all cases, under the old and the new rules that have just been adopted, it's always been the case that you have the duty to reevaluate material change in circumstances and whether that requires new disclosures and new consents. Now, in this case, the facts were pretty interesting because at the time that J.M. took the representation, Shepard Mullen had not represented South Tahoe for the prior five months. And then within, I think it was three or four weeks of taking on the representation, the San Francisco partner of Shepard Mullen started representing South Tahoe again. Now, there was very little discussion that I saw in the uh, Court of Appeals opinion and then also at argument as to what exactly could have been the material change in circumstance. So that should be an interesting ground for discussion. Like what is that material change in circumstance that triggers a duty to provide new disclosures? But in this particular case, even with an attorney diligently re-reviewing prior conflict waivers, it only happened within three to four weeks. And I think that's an important consideration. Um, That and the fact that it was a completely unrelated matter, you know, those factors together, they're very important in evaluating the effectiveness of this particular waiver.
0: The the, the time between the, the signing of the original waiver and then the subsequent work that Shepard Mullen did for, for South Tahoe, that, that was also a bit of a focus at oral argument as to, I guess, just whether or not the firm was representing South Tahoe at the time JM came on or whether they're only representing them once they were starting to do active work. I guess, why, Professor, is that an important question here in determining whether the the waiver is enforceable?
3: Well, I'm not so sure it should be, but uh, if uh, you're going to focus on the material risk to the first client, to the client giving the waiver, obviously what, what the law firm is doing for the second client and when they're doing it, it can be relevant. It can be relevant to the risk, the confidential information being disclosed or anything else like that. My my preferred approach to this, I'm not sure it's the route the courts are ultimately going to go. I mean, but is that remember there is no waiver of the duty to keep confidences. There is no waiver of uh, the uh, the duty not to be adverse to the client in the sub- same or substantially related matter. Those duties remain intact, and all we're talking about is adverse representation in an unrelated matter, where there's a continuing duty to keep confidences. that in that circumstances, uh, all I can say is that from a policy perspective, we'd be better off with a brighter line rule where the client uh, that's giving the waiver is independently represented by counsel, uh, and the counsel gives advice on whether that can be consented to or not. And if it is that it's, it's valid, if we start getting a lots of different that could be used to unwind the, the waiver, we g- are going to increase the unpredictability here. And if I'm running the law firm, I'm going to be much more inclined to just say no to the initial representation that's going to put me in this situation where I may, you know, at least take a risk of this type of litigation if I want to go do something uh, completely unrelated but adverse for another client.
0: You mentioned that there are certain duties that are not waived by, by dint of client signing this waiver. Um, that that also seemed to be something of interest to at least a, a couple of judges, uh, justices to oral argument, kind of the idea of whether uh, any of the attorney-client duties, the duties attorney owes to clients could be contracted around or uh, waived by clients. Uh, Jen, is that is that idea... One that is being sort of posited by the counsel for Shepard Mullin here is that sort of kind of outside of the case whether or not sort of as a general matter all attorney-client duties could be could be waived or contracted around.
2: Well, they're contracted around in the sense of the conflict issue. If you're informed and you understand the material risks, then you can contract around it to the extent it doesn't otherwise implicate your duties of loyalty and confidentiality, no matter what you have the duty to maintain and violate your client's confidences. So you could never do that. But in this particular case, I think their argument is that, you know, they disclosed that they could have current and future conflicts. And the company, JM, represented by independent in-house counsel who spent two hours with the agreement, reviewing it and editing it, understood those risks and nevertheless executed the waiver. So in terms of the duties, whether or not you can waive those duties of confidentiality and loyalty, no. But you can definitely explain the risks to your client and make sure that they understand.
0: Listeners heard from from Stephen Rauscher one point that, that he made and, and argued in his brief is that, you know, ethical rules are there for or reason and and so kind of more so we're, we're trusting the firm to kind of police when it's situations its representations become too adverse or just too problematic uh, as as he put it sort of you know the proverbial fox guarding the hen house P- professor what what is your thought on on that policy ar- argument
3: well uh, that is very broadly stated uh, policy argument but I think we need to remember that there are informed consents given all the time. They're not absolute duties. For example, a lawyer may represent two clients uh, who are setting up a business enterprise and get informed consent to the dual representation, even though the two clients may have potentially some adverse interests when they're setting up the business enterprise. Or you could have two defendants in uh, civil litigation who might potentially have adverse interests, but want to retain the same lawyer, and you have a, 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 an informed consent, and you may actually waive the duty of confidentiality. The understanding, then, is that whatever is told by one client to the lawyer will be revealed to the other client, or vice versa, because it wouldn't be practical to undertake the representation in that situation. Now, granted, a lot of those aren't um, advanced waivers. I mean, the lawyer, the clients are entitled to pull the plug on the arrangement anytime they want, but uh, I think it's important to remember that conflict rules and even confidentiality is contracted around the sense that clients give consent, and give consent frequently to disclosure of confidential information in this situation, or dual representation, and sometimes in the exact same matter, in a different situation. In here, once again, we have no consent to disclosure of confidential information. We have no consent to adverse representation in the same matter. We don't have anywhere near the risks that uh, often appear in uh, the many arrangements that are frequently entered into by lawyers who are representing two clients at the same time, sometimes in the same manner, and with consent. So uh, I think the trust rules here, as opposed to looking at the practicalities, is not a particularly helpful approach. Uh, we're not trying to arrive at an ideologically correct answer here. We're trying to provide the highest quality representation to clients with a minimal risk of conflicts. Uh, particularly conflicts that you know could be harmful to the clients that are not disclosed. And one of the questions I'd raise with respect to this case is what exactly is the specific harm to the client uh, that arises from the conflict uh, that is at issue here? Let
0: me just revisit briefly the other main policy argument in your brief about how these rigid rules could incentivize firms against taking on representation from clients of more modest means or pro bono clients. You know, One point that, that Mr. Rauscher made in, in, in the previous segment was even if that sort of incentive structure is set up with rigid rules, there's plenty of opportunities for firms to just say, you know, give a little bit more notice to clients as as needed to make sure everyone's, uh, you know, comfortable with any adverse system situations that come up and so it's not quite as dire of a situation as you, you describe in, in your brief that firms would be very shy from taking on these kind of clients. I guess, uh, Jen, what are your thoughts on on that, that sort of idea?
2: Well, I guess my first response would be in this particular case that opportunity was provided because the disclosure was very clear. We may currently represent clients who are adverse to you in unrelated matters. Uh, by taking on this representation, you acknowledge that and you're still okay with it and um as we've discussed independent counsel reviewed that for according to the court's opinion two hours and made handwritten notes there and never raised a concern that you know it's our policy not to take on adverse matters who are these adverse people that you're talking about who are they Because if those questions are raised, that invites the opportunity, well, um, let me go back to them. Let me see if they're okay disclosing it. They're not okay disclosing it. How much does that matter to you? This invites discussion with your client, which is what you should be having, because the goal is, again, to make sure that they understand these risks. So in this particular case, we believe that opportunity was provided to this client, and they did understand those material risks.
0: Okay. uh, Professor, and then uh, Jen, I'd invite you to to hop in as well, just in terms of how you, you thought the oral arguments um went? Uh, did what uh, what sort of point seemed to be most important to the justices, and which you know kind of how did you see them conceiving or the th- thinking about this issue before them?
2: I think what struck me the most initially was uh, a focus on Shepard Mullen's duty to the the former current client, depending on how you come out on that dispute, South Tahoe and whether or not the JM engagement triggered a duty to South Tahoe. And that was interesting because it was not quite essential to the holding, what they were dealing with. But it's interesting because the opinion should provide good guidance on what constitutes a material change in circumstances that will trigger new disclosures potentially and new informed consents. So that was particularly interesting. Um, I also found it interesting that there was very little discussion about the concern, at least in um, the briefing, the supplemental briefing addressing the new rules about this required disclosure of the client identity and potential roadblocks to that. And it would be very useful if there could be some guidance and discussion on that.
0: Professor, do you have thoughts on the oral arguments? Well,
3: I, I think that generally in oral arguments, the justices, they're going to try and get information from the lawyers about this specific case and how different legal rules play out based on the facts in this case. The justices are capable, uh, you know, wh- of working out the um, the broader ramifications of a decision. Of course, that's what they want to do: is come up with a decision that not only resolves the facts of this case but addresses, uh, you know, gives some guidance for other law firms and other similar situations going forward, but they may not want to get into all of that and you know, what kind of approach whether a bright line rule or, as I'm suggesting is preferable or some other approach is preferable uh, so oral arguments aren't always a good indication particularly in something, a case like this of where it's going to come out because uh, they're well aware of whatever they do here is going to have very broad ramifications in a lot of other cases with very different fact patterns but I'm not sure they're going to want to get into all of that with a lawyer's and oral argument. I don't see there's a particular value of that.
0: Yeah, just, just as a, a last question to, to finish up, I did want to delve briefly into some of those ramifications. Just, uh, I guess, I would say there's a lot at stake in the, the case before the court, millions, millions of dollars in attorney's fees, but it does sound like, as you describe it, they're Could be pretty significant changes in the ways that firms would need to to operate. Professor, could you describe some of those uh, those ramifications that you described?
3: Well, the concern that a lot of firms have, particularly the larger firms, is that there are certain uh, clients that they're very dependent on for their business model whether it's investment banks for the New York firms or some large technology companies for Bay Area firms, or the list goes on, or entertainment giants for the Los Angeles firms. I'm just throwing out a few examples. But a lot of firms have a business model where there are uh, you know, fewer than a dozen uh, anchor clients, sometimes only one or two anchor clients, that provide a lot of business. And they want to be able to do just about anything for one of those anchor clients that that client needs done. They don't want the uh, client to be told there's a conflict so you gotta go to a different law firm because once the client goes to a different law firm that gives the other law firm a chance to uh, to move in a, on other business. So if, what law firms are gonna do if they can't get advance waivers from the smaller clients who might be adverse to some of these anchor clients the big ones is be a lot more conservative about taking on smaller clients uh, people who who might be adverse to goldman sachs if let's say goldman sachs is one of your anchor clients you're just not going to want to uh, you're just not going to want to take them on uh, because if you take somebody on as a client in an intellectual property matter and then they're getting into an argument with Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs wants confidential advice behind the scenes as to what they could do in that dispute. You know, you can't give it. You're barred from giving it, or you got to go give a heads up. Of course, you give a heads up even without mentioning Goldman Sachs. They'll figure it out, and Goldman Sachs is not going to appreciate that. So, you know, the bottom line is that a lot of firms, particularly in today's very competitive business model of the environment, the bigger firms, may just focus on their big clients and then take on some other clients who just, uh, there's no way they're going to have an adverse situation with the big ones. Uh, but they're not going to play around with the clients who who might pose that risk unless they could get an enforceable advanced waiver along the lines of what's at issue in this case. And if uh, you specialist lawyers, such as intellectual property lawyers are very, very highly candidate, uh, criminal defense lawyers, whatever it is, are associated with those firms, That can cut back on the range of options that people have when they're looking for a, for a lawyer to represent them if they happen to be one of those smaller clients.
0: Jen, is that the, the most salient consideration in your mind as well, that firms might lean towards the bigger clients and, and leave smaller clients uh, struggling to find uh, the representation they'd like?
2: Yeah. I mean, this is all about client choice and client options. And the more options that clients have, you know, the better it is for them. And by increasing roadblocks to these waivers, it's restricting. It's having the effect of restricting the options for these clients. It, it, that's not the goal, right? The goal is that you want clients to be able to choose their lawyers and make decisions for themselves, whether or not the identities of somebody, some other client in an unrelated matter matters to them versus their ability to get the lawyer of their choice um, that's what this is all about
0: okay well certainly uh, attorneys across the state here will will be very interested in how the court comes down here in a few weeks but uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and leave it there for now uh, Jennifer LaGrange a partner with Spurtis, Landis and Umhofer. thanks very much for being on the podcast thank you and uh, P- professor Richard Painter from University of Minnesota Law School and thanks you for being on the podcast and uh, good luck in your campaign
3: thank you so much
0: With that, our program for June 22nd, 2018 is complete. Thanks to all three of my guests, Stephen Rauscher, Jennifer LaGrange, and Richard Painter. And of course, thanks to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. Also, thanks to our editor, David Houston, and thanks to you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget to find us, subscribe to us, like us on iTunes and the podcast app, where we can be found by searching Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal. Also, don't forget to retrieve your one hour of California CLE credit on the dealerjournal.com site. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.